This week on the Managing Remote Teams podcast. A little over two years ago, about three months before the pandemic, I got invited to help organize a cancer and evolution conference. And the plan was that it was going to be in Cambridge, Massachusetts, probably at Harvard or MIT. In fact, we started putting it together and I, I even got a speaking invitation at Harvard that was going to be in May of 2020. And then all... <laughs> Wow, Barry, you got a speaking invitation at Harvard. Like, dang, all that got canceled. Might yeah. So there's been no speaking opportunity at Harvard. The symposium got moved to Zoom, and it happened on Zoom. I believe that was what made it successful. We got all the speakers we wanted except for one. And the reason was everybody was stuck at home. And as a result of that, a whole organization formed around the science of cancer and evolution. And I later found out there had been probably five or six attempts to do this before that had never succeeded. And it succeeded partly because it was the right combination of people this time. And it was on Zoom and every everybody's schedules had been completely disrupted and it happened. And I've now run with multiple opportunities that have come out of that. And it's really blossomed into something quite remarkable that I could not have possibly predicted two years ago. That's just an example of how it's gone. And, and I am prone as much as anybody to wish things were the way they were going to be and try to force it and try to jam it. But I found what actually works the best is when you let go of your preconceived notion of how it was going to be and you just pursue it the way that it actually is and, and just keep walking through open doors. You are listening to the Managing Remote Teams podcast, the show taking a kind, cool-headed, and fair look at remote teams. I'm the host, Luke Shermer, and I've participated in or run distributed teams for almost a decade as a practitioner. I'm speaking with experts on leadership, strategic alignment, and remote work to help you navigate the issues you start facing after you get your working from home gear sorted. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Today on the Managing Remote Teams podcast, I'm excited to be hosting Perry Marshall. Perry is a business consultant who has branched out into scientific research. One of the reasons which I was keen to speak uh, to Perry about was uh, a piece that he put out a while ago about what work is and how work looks now in the context of remote work. So I guess what is work? (laughs) Let's let's go there. We need more words for work than we actually have. I realized this about eight, eight years ago. I did a now famous seminar with Richard Koch. It was very expensive and Richard is a billionaire now. He, he was only worth a couple hundred million then, and he's, he's one of the wealthiest guys in the world. Richard works about an hour a day. He's an equity investor. I confirmed myself because I spent a week living in a couple of his various houses. His wealth is spiraling upwards at the similar paces as Warren Buffett. And I, I started realizing I got some blowback from certain people about this. 
Well, you're you're selling porn, business porn. You're you're encouraging people to be lazy and slothful, and I don't really buy your argument that this is just eighty twenty. And I had to realize it's like the word love. A person who speaks Greek or a person who's a biblical scholar would know that the Greeks had three words for love. They had eros, which is sexual love, phileo, which is brotherly love, and agape, which is like uh, boundless, unfiltered, un un unlimited love. It's very clear if you have three words, it's very clear that you're not talking about sex, for example. If you don't have enough words for something, you tend to mix things up in your head. And I realized that people were doing this about work. I've got a colleague, John Fancher, who we've been working together for years. We sat down and we discussed this very carefully. And we realized that we need to put on a quadrant system. And we came up with four kinds of work. And I think this is an incredibly useful distinction. And the kind of work that most people are hopefully talking about when they talk about work and, and work is a good thing is what we called work ethic. And work ethic is if you're an attorney and you bill 300 pounds an hour and you're very good at what you do and you're doing what you do best for your clients, that's work ethic. And you should try to maximize that in your workday. But then there are several other kinds of, of work. So another quadrant is we call it sweet life. And that is taking a day off. It is spending the evening with your family. It's going on vacation or holiday. And you need some of that too. There's a false economy of working seven days a week. It appears to be productive. It is not. It is less productive, not more. There's a false economy in working 14 hours a day because the truth is most people have about two to four hours of really good quality thinking time, productivity, like the razor blade is sharp, right? <laughs> the knife blade is sharp, right? And the rest of it is cutting with a dull knife or shaving with a dull razor. I just had a conversation uh, a day or two ago about like venture capital firms and investors who ex like, man, we're going to work the team to death. Like it's going to be 90 hours a week and we're going to deliver lunch and they're just going to be here all the time. And we'll, we're going to do their laundry and we're going to get 90 hours a week out of these people. And you don't. You get 90 hours of really low quality, poor decisions. Second quadrant is, is sweet life. Sweet life. Okay. okay. Third quadrant is barnacles. Now, this is the real enemy here. And barnacles is low productivity, predictable, easy work that either shouldn't be done or should be done as little as possible. So what, what is Barnacles? Barnacles is clicking refresh on your email box 162 times a day. <laughs> Barnacles is, I just think I'm gonna go on LinkedIn for a while, okay? It's, it's the stuff you do when you're procrastinating. And most people do hours and hours of barnacle work every day. And it feels like work, but it's really not work. 
<laughs> it's it's not. It's a waste of time. Okay. In fact, I think a lot of people spend five or six hours a day on Barnacle. The fourth category is what I call Renaissance time. And Renaissance time is pre unpredictably, occasionally productive exploration. If you pray and meditate in the morning, which I highly recommend that you do, that's Renaissance time. If you go on an adventurous vacation that is stimulating, as opposed to just relaxing, like maybe maybe you go mountain climbing, that's Renaissance time. Going to a concert is Renaissance time. And exploring, reading books you wouldn't normally read, having lunch with people you wouldn't normally have lunch with, that is 95% of the time it's just fun. And 5% of the time it's incredibly productive. And most of the breakthroughs in your life actually come from there. They come from having lunch with somebody you don't even know very well who knows this other person and they introduce you and like it, it opens a whole new world to you. So work ethic, sweet life, barnacles and renaissance time. And the real name of the game, I think, is moving barnacle time to renaissance time, which makes most people feel guilty. <laughs> the, the, the really nefarious aspect of Barnett stuff is that people don't feel guilty about it. They fool themselves into thinking that they're doing something productive. They're actually only doing something predictable. A lot of people to go on vacation or to go mountain climbing, they feel like, oh, I have to earn this. I have to justify it. I have to rationalize it. This is a waste of time. That's just head trash. So four kinds of work. And when, when I started making these distinctions, my life became way more effective and productive than it ever was before. So, so, so going back to Richard Koch, the, the basic idea is that he spends an hour a day in work ethic time and then tries to spend as much of the rest in Renaissance time. That's, yes. That's... In fact, this was why we made the quadrants. Because I realized that Richard spends probably five or six hours a day doing Renaissance time. He rides his bike three hours a day. That's Renaissance time. He spends the afternoon reading, writing, researching, and it's whatever he wants to do. He's interested in politics. He's interested in religion. He's interested in science. He's interested in business. Maybe today he wants to argue with somebody about British politics or whatever, but it's very deliberate and it's not work ethic. It's not, oh, I'm, I got my nose to the grindstone. I'm running the business. This is the exact opposite of the way most people operate. Most people, if they were good and balanced, they would do one hour of Renaissance time and five or six hours of work ethic time. He flips it upside down. And I think this is a major reason why he's so wealthy. Yeah. Is 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 he makes time for exploration and he's constantly chiseling down. I don't need to be doing this. I don't need to be doing that. Somebody else could be doing that. And so this was a major revelation when I wrapped my head around what he was doing. Two of the quadrants are about the work being unpredictable. The un the unpredictability component is, is the piece that a lot of people feel uncomfortable with. Y yes. So it's also when valuable. 
before we came up with the names, the, the quadrants were there's productive, unproductive, predictable, unpredictable. And so like sweet life is unpredictably unproductive. <laughs> okay. It's, which is what a vacation. Okay. It's not supposed to be productive. It's you're supposed to be resting. But then when you get to unpredictably productive, so here's the thing, doing what you've always done will always get you what you've always got. Most people's lives are honestly way too predictable. <laughs> um, they, in fact, they're so predictable. Um, they don't even have most of their calendar mapped out more than about two weeks in advance. And it's not because they're gonna be doing new things in three months. It's because they're going to be doing the same old things in three months and they just haven't exactly decided when I'm going to have this phone call or when I'm going to have this meeting, but I know I'm going to be going into the same office or doing the same job. The, the people who are doing unpredictable things are the people whose calendar is mapped out six months, 12 months, 18 months in advance because they're actually doing something that's new and different or something important or something that is going to impact or shape the world. And so you need to make room for discovery. And if it's discovery by definition, you can't predict exactly what it's gonna be and, and you don't want it to. And so you have to have permission. Let, let's talk about meeting people. One of Richard's observations is that the best networking comes from the friends of the people on the edge of your network, not the friends of your close friends. The friends of your close friends, you probably already know. But so Luke, I don't know you super well. We've known each other a few years, but we're not close friends. So if I have a good friend that I have beer with every week and I have you and he's got a friend and you've got a friend, the likelihood of me making a major breakthrough meeting your friend is way greater than me making a breakthrough um, meeting my friend's friend. But meeting your friend, there's probably only one chance in 20 that's going to turn into something big. I need to give myself permission for the other 19 meetings to completely be okay. I'm going to go have lunch with those people. I have no idea what's going to happen. Most of the time, nothing's going to happen other than hopefully we had an interesting conversation. And I'm not going to hold, I'm like, like this has to be productive. This has to work. Like you may, you better make sure this is the problem with a Protestant work ethic. It's you have to make every single minute count. Well, you can do that if you work on an assembly line. Is that what you want? Do you like working on an assembly line? Do you like everything being predictably productive all the time and you're just cranking out the stuff? No. Well, maybe some people do, but I, I certainly some don't. Some people, <laughs> and God bless them. So in this context, there's an interesting relationship between some of the boxes too. So you came up with this idea of the gravitational slingshot. So what do you mean with that? So when they sent the Voyager satellite into outer space in the late 1970s. The rockets we could put on that thing could only push it so fast and so far. And somebody figured out that if you pointed the satellite at a planet and at just the right angle, it would make this V 
and it would come back the other way. It goes into the gravitational field of the planet and it makes half of an orbit and then it comes back the other way. And through this crazy mathematical voodoo, it takes away some of the momentum of the planet and it adds it to the satellite. And so it comes shooting back the other way. And I believe they did this twice, not once. Hmm. Um, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, something like that. They slingshotted it and they figured out exactly when to do it and how to do it. And then it shot it way faster into the edges of the solar system so that it go past Neptune and Uranus and Pluto. And, and now it's like right now, it's now 24 light year hours. That's how long it takes for the signal to get back to Earth. It's, I don't know, 40 million miles out there or something like that. Out there, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> However far that billion, 40, I don't know how far it is. It's, that, that is the only way they could do that. Okay, and so this is a concept that you can apply to business or publicity. Like if you're in a debate and your opponent is famous and you're not, if you can get your opponent to debate you, that will make you famous. And that is a gravitational slingshot. Yeah. And let's just generalize it to the point that most advances that you make in your career are not going to come from your own energy. They are going to come from other people's orbits. Okay, so I'll give you an example of how I use this. I organized a $10 million prize. It's the largest fundamental science research prize in the world. And it's for origin of the genetic code. I don't have a PhD. I don't work professionally as a scientist. Like... How is a guy with electrical engineering degree going to get the scientific world to take me seriously when I don't have all of the credentials? Well, I got people who do. So I've got George Church from Harvard University, uh, who's one of the most influential geneticists of all time. And I've got Dennis Noble of Oxford, who's the leading physiologist at that university. And, and this got me into a world that I couldn't possibly have gotten into myself. Now, I did things that none of those people were doing, like raising investment money and organizing prizes. So I did what I could do, but then I brought it together. And so to me, that's analogous to that tiny little satellite slingshotting around a planet, coming back the other way 10 times as fast and going 10 times as far and creating a situation where people have no choice but to take you seriously. So the reason why I was thinking about it was in the context of especially the, the sweet life being used as a way to get back into the other quadrants. Yes, okay, perfect example. I just came back from Antarctica and that was basically two weeks of renaissance time unpredictably productive not necessarily work productive but completely expanding my horizons and i gotta tell you most people probably think of antarctica as this blizzardy wasteland where explorers go to die or crazy people live there to do science experiments or something 
it is the most beautiful place I've ever been. Wow. And I don't even have vocabulary for what that experience was like. It was so incredibly beautiful, stimulating, pristine, wild, austere, inhospitable, teeming with life. It was so incredibly stimulating. I already know from going to other places, doing other times, that trip is probably going to feed my creativity for a couple of years. And people who give themselves permission to do this sort of thing will tell you that. I will be more productive this year for having gone to Antarctica. It was expensive. It wasn't cheap. But for having taken the time off and spent the money, I think I will be more productive in my work life because my imagination is better and my intuition is sharper and I, I feel better. I'm more connected to nature. I think that is a gravitational slingshot. And a, a lot of people just have a hard time giving themselves permission to enjoy anything. I get that you have unfinished business and you have obligations and you have unfinished projects and all of us do. When are you going to start enjoying your life? <laughs> okay, are you waiting until some magical moment happens when you suddenly ah, have permission like to do something interesting? There's no rule that says it even has to cost money. I ride my bike through the forest preserve several times a week. Bikes are cheap and forest preserves are free. <laughs> okay, if you don't have money to go in Antarctica, I understand. How long has it been since you've been to the forest preserve? How long since you've been since you sat by a babbling brook or a lake? Like those things, these things don't cost money. So speaking of money, to draw it back a little bit more into more, let's say, business things, another kind of related concept that you had in terms of time that I think is really useful is that there's some types of work that's, let's say, $10 an hour work. There's some that's 100 some that's 1000 some yes. that's 10000 I don't think you've quite gotten to 100000 I'm sure you could. I'm not sure if I could. Let me challenge. So let's talk about that. Uh, this sure. is great. So... Most people think of work as, oh, my first job paid $5.50 an hour. And, oh, if I do the math, now I make $26 an hour or I make $78 an hour or I make $150,000 a year. People think of the value of their time as some kind of average of what they make. But that completely obscures the actual value of what you do minute to minute, hour to hour, day to day. The truth about what you do is that the value of your time is on an exponential scale. And there's a whole bunch of stuff in your life that's basically $10 an hour work. Like really anybody could do doing your laundry is $10 an hour work and making macaroni and cheese is $10 an hour work and shuffling papers and going to the store, like all that, that's $10 an hour work. And there's an awful lot of business, whatever you do in your profession, it, it needs to be done by somebody, but it's not particularly valuable. And you know, the average $100,000 a year person spends the vast majority of their time doing literally $10 an hour work. 
okay? But then there's $100 an hour work. And that's things like answering a question from a customer or doing something useful with your other staff members or whatever. There's less of that, but there's quite a bit of it. And then there's $1,000 an hour work. And there's less of that, but it's still there. And then there's $10,000 an hour work. So let, let me give you an example just to make it very clear that everybody does $10,000 an hour work, even if they don't realize it. Let's say you are a receptionist at a dental office. And the phone rings and there's too much going on. And you go, can you hold, please? And you put the person on hold for two minutes. And then you pick up the phone and they're gone. Yeah. Now the receptionist makes like 20 bucks an hour. And so you think of the receptionist job as being a $20 an hour job, but the person who called was ready to spend $5,000 on dental work. And in two minutes you lost them. Okay. So $5,000 in two minutes. That's $150,000 an hour of lost money from a $20 an hour person. Okay, so my argument is if Helen, the receptionist and the dentist and the office manager, if they all get together and they figure out what is it that we are going to do to make sure that nobody gets put on hold for two minutes, especially when they're about to spend $5,000 and that those things don't fall through the cracks, whatever meeting systems that you had to put together and to make sure that happens, that is $1,000 an hour work for everybody involved. Yeah. As a business consultant who's worked in 300 industries and every kind of business you can imagine, these kind of things happen all the time everywhere there's all kinds of spots where customers have bad experiences they're ignored they're neglected they're willing to spend money and nobody's available to take it and so even helen does ten thousand dollar an hour work for two minutes at a time and probably she's completely unaware of it so if, if this is true of Helen, who makes $20 an hour, how true is it of somebody who has a team of five people or 50 people or 500 people? There's huge levers in your work. If you do have a, a team, how would you go about thinking through and, and maximizing the amount of value that they generate? I think everybody knows what delegation is. But if you want to go beyond that, you need to ask the question, what are the actual superpowers of my team members? And how do I get each team member operating as much in their superpower as possible? Let's look at what's $10 work, what's 100,000, 10,000 as being considerably different for each team member. Okay, what's $10,000 an hour work for the dentist is not the same as what's $10,000 an hour work for Helen. 
which is not the same as what's $10,000 an hour work for the manager. One of the difficult conversations to have with a team is, okay, everybody knows what everybody else does, but how much of your job isn't really in your wheelhouse? Or if we adjusted things, if we moved some of the jobs around, everybody would be a lot happier and frankly, a lot more productive. And how many jobs are we doing around here that don't really need to be done in the first place? Or nobody remembers, why do we do this? One of the problems with a good workhorse team member, like one of the really reliable ones, and they have all the keys and they have all the passwords and they come early and they stay late. One of the common problems with that employee is that they are so dutiful and obedient that they don't question whether they should even be doing something in the first place. Sometimes you need to teach them to question it. Like if you're doing stuff and you don't know why you're doing it, come and ask. Because maybe <laughs> you shouldn't be doing it at all. And this is so now it's hard to have the conversation. If you get all your employees in a room and say, so let's have a con conversation about what jobs we should have. Everybody's got feelings about this stuff. People are afraid of hurting each other's feelings. People yeah. are afraid of speaking up for themselves. There's always one or two people that speak up for themselves too much. There's always <laughs> that speak up too little, right? And it's going to be a sticky, uncomfortable conversation before it starts turning productive. But I'll give you an example of how this really helped me about 10 years ago. I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the Colby test, K-O-L-B-E, but it's a really great tool for figuring out how people work. And we had all taken our Colby scores and we were on the phone with a Colby consultant who was looking at our scores and saying, look, looking at all your scores, here's where I think you're probably having problems. And she nailed us. Hmm. And because she was like poking these problems exactly, several of us started getting upset because there was pent up frustrations. And the conversation kind of went like this. Everybody's like, why does Perry ram these projects down our throat and, and we have to have them done in three days? And the reason is, is it's the 27th of the month and we have to do payroll on the 30th and the stuff has to get done. And the Colby consultant says, there's no person in the middle of this organization connecting everybody and deciding what everybody needs to do. You have the visionary who knows what needs to be done, but Perry's not a manager, okay? And so he's really just forcing things through at the last minute, and it's really not how the organization ought to run. And at that point, my brother who was like the curmudgeon consultant in Lincoln, Nebraska, who occasionally comes out of his cave and works with a team, but often is writing books or like doing things on the side. He stepped up and he goes, this needs to be done and I'm going to do it. And I'm like, really? And everybody's like, really? And, and he stepped up and he became the president of the company. He had that position for 10 years. That would have never happened if we had a deliberate conversation about it is everybody doing what they should be doing based on their giftedness and their skills, superpowers. And so I can hardly imagine 
that there is any company uh, listening to me where if, if you had that conversation and worked your way through the uncomfortable part, that by the time you get to the end, you start moving around and everybody's happier and they're more productive. And if you have to give yourself permission to stop doing stuff that you're not good at or that you're, you're okay at, but you're not great at because good really is the enemy of the great. Is that pretty much how you tie the two things together? The, the quadrants and, and the, Yes. So my barnacles aren't the same as your barnacles. My work ethic stuff isn't the same as yours. My Renaissance time isn't the same as yours. And so if we can really think carefully about what is Luke's $10,000 an hour work? And, and that very seriously, okay, think through the last year. When were those magic moments? Let's take a salesperson who's on straight commission, or let's say they're hypothetically on straight commission, even if they get a salary. There's about 250 work days in a year. Odds are half the money that you made last year, you made in about five days. It's almost certainly true. You go, okay, so what were those five days when you made literally half your income? I closed this one deal and the big client showed up. I got this product out the door and that product has sold really well. What was the bottleneck that you solved that got that product out the door? Because there's all this mundane stuff about developing the product, but there was some sticking point and it took some of your special sauce for that to happen. What was it? And you start looking at that and you go, wow, I don't spend most of my time doing these kinds of things. I spend most of my time polishing turds. <laughs> okay. And honestly, that's what I'm doing, right? I only got five minutes till the next meeting. I think I'm going to go on Twitter. How about instead of go on Twitter, you re-examine your priority list for the day and cross off two things that you really don't need to be doing. That's way more productive than going on Twitter. And it's less distracting too. Both of these concepts you've had around for a while, and I think a lot's changed over the last two years. March 2020. <laughs> so we're getting to two years, I think. Yeah. So depending on when this goes out. So how has that change in context for everyone? How does that influence what how you think about these well, two approaches? One thing that's just been more and more clear to me as I've matured is that we have this illusion of that we're in control of things. And I think it's mostly an illusion. I think if, if there's anything the pandemic teaches us, it's that we're actually in control of very little. And even to the point where people can pretend I got a vaccine or if you wear a mask or if I issue this regulation, like I can control this thing. It, I don't know, it's pretty obvious to me that you can certainly affect it to some degree, but you're never going to control it. And rather than controlling things, I think we need to look for affordances or opportunities that open up in the midst of the chaos. So I haven't enjoyed being in a pandemic any more than anybody else has, okay? But I got to say, I've been ridiculously productive in the pandemic to generalize 
I would say it's because I decided to be agile and take what was thrown at me and run with it. So I'll give you an example. A little over two years ago, about three months before the pandemic, I got invited to help organize a cancer and evolution conference. And the plan was that it was going to be in Cambridge, Massachusetts, probably at Harvard or MIT. In fact, we started putting it together and I, I even got a speaking invitation at Harvard that was going to be in May of 2020. And then all, <laughs> wow, Barry, you got a speaking invitation at Harvard, like, dang, all that got canceled. Might, yeah. So there's been no speaking opportunity at Harvard. The symposium got moved to Zoom and it happened on Zoom. I believe that was what made it successful. We got all the speakers we wanted except for one. And the reason was everybody was stuck at home. And as a result of that, a whole organization formed around the science of cancer and evolution. And I later found out there had been probably five or six attempts to do this before that had never succeeded. And it succeeded partly because it was the right combination of people this time. And it was on Zoom and every, everybody's schedules had been completely disrupted and it happened. And I've now run with multiple opportunities that have come out of that. And it's really blossomed into something quite remarkable that I could not have possibly predicted two years ago. That's just an example of how it's gone. And, and I am prone as much as anybody to wish things were the way they were going to be and try to force it and try to jam it. But I found what actually works the best is when you let go of your preconceived notion of how it was going to be and you just pursue it the way that it actually is and, and just keep walking through open doors. If we were to leap 10 years into the future, we will look back and you go, who were the people that rose the most in the last 10 years? And I think a lot of it is going to be the people who exercised agility in the pandemic. I think one of the ways that people avoid being agile is they argue about what everybody should be doing. Okay. <laughs> I think if you're on Twitter all day arguing about masks and arguing about government regulations and, and all of that stuff, you're just wasting the opportunity that you could have had to go get something done because I'm not going to change any government regulations and neither are you. And I'm not going to come up with a cure for COVID, but I can do what I can do. And we can all do more than we think we can. Do you have any insights in terms of like specifically how teams work within companies or something, how that's shifted in your own company and client companies, that kind of thing? Um, everybody is learning a lesson that I already learned the hard way because I've run a virtual company for 20 years. And I think there's a very fundamental trade-off of going virtual. And here's what it is. The positive side is that you can get anybody you want or any kind of talent you want needles in haystacks like no matter how rare or hard to get it's obtainable yeah. because the person doesn't have to move okay and then there's a penalty that you pay for it 
And the penalty is that communication is three times more work in a virtual company than it is in a in-person company. And there's all these things that you don't hear over the transom. So for example, one of my team members just found out four months later that one of my other team members had a divorce. Nobody right. knew that she didn't know this. I thought everybody knew. Well, no. In an in-person company, there's no way you wouldn't know. Yeah. It would get discussed at lunch or during a break or something like that. But because communication has to be so deliberate, if you're running a virtual company, you have to deliberately, consciously over-communicate with everybody, over-communicate your priorities, over-communicate why we're doing what we're doing. And it is an energy drain. Like, I think it's a lot, it takes a lot more mental energy to be on Zoom than it does to sit in a chair at a table with some other people. And so that is the trade-off. And so as companies go virtual, like nobody wants to come in and all that. Well, my personal opinion, like I always get my whole entire team together once a year just for the sake of doing it. And we fly them in from all over the place. And I get parts of my team together in a room multiple times a year and I spend the money to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think companies where everybody's gone virtual are going to have to make very deliberate investments. Maybe it's, hey, everybody comes in on Thursdays. I know you don't want to, we all gotta see each other, we all gotta talk to each other. And I'm sure that means that you're gonna develop a whole new rhythm for how it works. Or maybe you fly everybody in every three months or every six months. I think you need to have parties, you need to have social time, it's, you don't just do it to have meetings. I know a friend who, I can think of two different companies. They flew all their employees to Hawaii. They, they were, they're doing great. And that's really expensive. Yeah, but you know what? Employees really like going to Hawaii. You know? <laughs> like if, if, if they were thinking about quitting, maybe they're not so sure. And, and so I, I guess what I'm saying is, don't, don't be in denial about the real cost of having a well-functioning virtual team because it's going to cost you. Yeah. yeah. It's funny because before the pandemic, I think a lot of the argument for virtual work was like, well, you're not going to have any kind of office related real estate costs. And that actually it's cheaper <laughs> to be all remote, all virtual. And yeah, now at least we've don't have the kind of internal barrier of, oh, it would never work if everybody was virtual. Well, now we know it can work, better or worse, but it can work. So It can work, but it's harder than it looks. Yeah. And you have to be very deliberate about it. Yeah. This has been great, Perry. Thank you very much for hopping on. I would, I would like to suggest that if, if, uh, if this was helpful to you, you would really like my book, Detox, Declutter, Dominate, which is it's only 36 pages. It's on Amazon, Detox, Declutter, Dominate by Perry Marshall. It's got a whole section on the work quadrants and several other things. 80-20 time, it's got a chart of $10,000 $10, an hour work. And I think that book will literally change your life.
like I said, in only 36 pages. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. And I know you definitely can pack a lot of punch in a short amount of pages. So in a small amount of pages, that is great. Yeah. And um, I guess if anyone else wants to check you out, it'd be what perrymarshall.com would be the go to perrymarshall.com and uh, get 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 on the email list and we'll we'll challenge your assumptions from the very first minute. All right, great. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Managing Remote Teams podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts and reach out to us on Twitter or LinkedIn with any feedback or thoughts that you have for a future show. 